1: Or Whatever Movies
0: with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. (sighs) Dude, that was actually pretty good. (laughs) Like, very subtle. That was Nat Love, right? That wasn't Idris Elba?
1: No, it would have been Wesley.
0: (sighs) And today we're talking a brand new movie available on Netflix, The Harder They Fall.
1: Harder they fall.
0: Nate, I am your brother. Nate, I am your
1: brother. He's like Darth Vader. Um, The entire movie hinged on that turn.
0: Everything. Did Nate Love make the right choice fulfilling the plan that Rufus Buck laid out?
1: I mean, he ended up right where he wanted him, performed the duty that he felt he was bound to, to do.
0: I think that Nate Love realized that Though it was kind of orchestrated by Rufus Buck, he wasn't necessarily becoming who Rufus Buck thought he would become by fulfilling that fate.
1: He was just a different person, and his purpose, I guess, ultimately was revenge on his dad. I don't know, like, was his release from prison orchestrated for that purpose? Like, they went through a lot of trouble to break him out. I don't think anybody else knew, right? He let everybody die and was like, I'm your brother. <laughs>
0: He didn't let them die, but they did. Pretty much everybody died.
1: I was like, is he ever going to come out of that room? He was locked up in that window like a video game final boss fight. You can't fight the final boss until you kill everybody else and shoot your way through the house up to the main, the end room.
0: And did the entire town of Redwood just evacuate? As soon as the Nat Love gang rode into town because there was nobody around.
1: Yeah. And they were like, let's get Mary out of here. Get her on a horse, which she never did. And then he goes up there and talks with his brother for a half an hour. There's uncertain gunshots and he walks outside and she's just kind of chilling in the empty town. Yeah. Didn't even try to get away.
0: Yeah. Super chilling. And they're having a conversation out there, and Delroy Lindo is like, "Don't miss," and he's like all oh, taking his time getting in. And then, meanwhile, what's her face? Um, Trudy. No. Uh,
1: there's only two women Cuffee. in this movie. What do you mean there's only? Oh, a- Cuffy. Okay, I, I, w- I was I wasn't wrong.
0: <laughs> no, I was unconvinced that Cuffy was a woman until he pulls out the dress.
1: I didn't even know then. From the very first when she first spoke and no stubble and high voice, I was like, is that person a woman? And Kelly was like, I think so. Or whatever. And I'm, you know, not getting into gender shit. But then at the end, when, spoiler, she becomes always wanted to be sheriff of a town or law of a town or whatever. I was like, wait a minute. You're (laughs) a fugitive bank robber. And Kelly was like, no, that was a woman. This is a dude. And I was like, oh, fair enough. Nobody would recognize Her, him as the law, as the sheriff or whatever,
0: because, yeah, but they would have recognized. I mean, I guess when she was the bouncer at Mary's Club, like she wasn't a criminal. So I guess you can go from being the bouncer at Mary's Club to being the law.
1: And Nat was dead for all intents and purposes. Del Rolindo inexplicably survived this movie and they pieced out <laughs> obviously there's a fantastic cast which is the whole reason I suggested watching this movie and then yet the rest of them to me at least are relatively unknown i think i think it's on hbo right lovecraft country Yes. And we watched so much of HBO with The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor and stuff like that. When you get into horror Fair on HBO, they constantly advertise Lovecraft Country or it comes up in other selections you might like. And so I recognized his face from that, never having watched that show. Basically, everyone on Atlanta, Zossi <laughs> Beats included, were totally unknown to me.
0: Uh-huh. So top of the list of favorite performers in this, Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield, and Idris Elba. Yeah.
1: And one might say Delroy Lindo, too, who I liked, but then was totally ruined for me in The Five Bloods. The Five Bloods, sorry. Which is
0: so weird because he had such a great performance in The Five Bloods.
1: I disagree. You were like, he's Oscar bound and no one, ever, no one said a word. And to that end, this movie was kind of a loser's club for last year. I don't remember what movie that Idris Elba was in last year. Uh, he makes like six a year, but obviously he lost for it. Regina King didn't get any awards at all for One Night in Miami. Lakeith lost out on Judas and the Black Messiah. And then Delroy Lindo was ignored, I think rightly so, for Defive Bloods.
0: Is that because Oscar's so white?
1: I don't I don't know. And so they were like, what are we doing, guys? Like, we're supposed to represent. And they're like, let's make a Western. <sighs>
0: Have you seen Idris Elba's other Western, Concrete Cowboy?
1: Uh, I have not, as a matter of fact. And here's the weird thing. He was also a cowboy, albeit a fantasy Stephen King cowboy in The Gunslinger, the Dark Tower, first Dark Tower movie with Matthew McConaughey that didn't go anywhere. In fact, as I hear, it was so bad, I literally cannot recall, because we read that book. I literally cannot recall whether or not we saw that movie.
0: Ooh, if, yes.
1: if we saw it, it completely disappeared from my mind.
0: Yeah, 5.6 out of 10 on IMDb.
1: But dude, with the presence Idris Elba and no no one and even I even liked little baby Regina King and her, she was scary and vicious, but nobody comes close to Lakeith Stanfield as Cherokee.
0: In this movie or in general,
1: he's just he's got so much presence. Every time he's on the screen for me, he's magnetic and as the bad guy, he was even scarier. He was like Charlie Prince in pretend to Yuma the remake but you know an alternate version and and Idris Elba was like the kind of sad-eyed Russell Crowe character
0: <laughs> I can totally see that comparison but you love Lee Stanfield and I thought he was great and his performance was kind of understated and yet super powerful. But really he was pretty one note. And I don't think that's any fault of Keith Stanfield. I think that was kind of more of a um, in the writing. I don't think he had as much dimension as either of his counterparts in the Nat Love Gang who were all kind of trading on the whole Doc Holliday vibe.
1: Uh, well, his counterparts in the other gang, because I think he was also one up in terms of style and presence and I guess character development by Trudy and as well as Buck
0: yeah and tr- <laughs> so I've got my nicknames for Trudy and Buck you want hear them
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: <laughs> or and also Mary so what, what was it treacherous Trudy
1: well yeah as opposed to gruesome Gertrude or something
0: <laughs> that's right or
1: gratuitous Gert- Gertrude something
0: <laughs> uh so I've got top hat Mary
1: <laughs> yeah
0: Tootie Trudy Why? Because she had major tood. Everybody had (laughs) tood. What was with all the attitude? Dude, this should be called the more attitude they have.
1: Gravitas.
0: And then um, big entrance Buck. I I need to find a more elegant solution for that. But every single time Rufus Buck is introduced in the scene, he like makes a grand entrance. (laughs) And it takes like two minutes to reveal this character that we've already been introduced to.
1: I called him Golden Guns McCree. He finally got his golden guns back at the end, which are absolutely ridiculous. Like face-off, Nicolas Cage-level ridiculous. How so? I don't know. It's just they had all these gold accents and their pistols were all ornate. And I thought it looked a little bit silly. It was just like this weird opulence. And I get that in the real West, it wasn't all like dusty browns and whites. It was a lot of that. But there was also a lot of color. And, you know, and she pulls out that dress and it looks absurd. But also they had those materials and then could create those colors. I mean, in in Redwood, not in White City or whatever, the whitest town in America. Uh, You mean Whitesville? (laughs) It wasn't Whitefield or something. It was like Maysville.
0: Yeah, was that that was a little on the nose, wasn't it? I mean, there were all of these weird tonal moments where I was like, this thing is so self-aware and the tones all over the place with the comedy. And then Homeboy breaks the fourth wall and you're like, what is happening?
1: And when he does break the fourth wall, which Kelly pointed out to me, like it was a stylistic choice. And she asked me initially, is this Tarantino? It wants very badly to be Django. The fourth wall breaking didn't exactly bother me because that was continually reinforced when it became a musical. Like people would randomly burst into song.
0: Not only would they burst into song or would like a full vocals track come on, but they also would introduce the song.
1: Well, it was on the subtitles anyway.
0: They were subtitling, but the vocalist in the needle drop literally says, and uh, now we're introducing this song that I can't pronounce. (laughs) And then they started playing
1: it. a lot of these songs were the director, specifically his songs, because he's a musician.
0: That makes sense. So just throw a track in there and...
1: Or, then... or half a dozen, because <laughs> a couple of them they played continuously. And the whistle they came back to repeatedly. So James Samuel is a, uh, a singer as well as a director and a co-writer.
0: That makes a lot of sense because um, those songs were pretty intrusive. Uh, and I get that it's a stylistic choice, a bold stylistic choice, and I can get behind that. Mostly because it's not like I was immersed in the movie. There were so many tonal discrepancies or just tonal choices. They didn't seem like mistakes or oversights. Like they made tonal choices to keep me out of this film. In which case I didn't bump on the music stuff.
1: The music didn't bump for you. It was hyper color. It was hyper stylized. There were even fake lens flares in there. But all this was noted very early. I was like, okay, this is the kind of movie it's going to be. Because very early on, it said produced by Sean Carter. And I was like, (gasps) Jay-Z, this is going to be musical. This is going to be stylish. It's going to be contemporary. There was a whole lot of wanting to be Tarantino in there. That kind of was obvious. But at the same time, the director paid a lot of homage to Sergio Leone. Like the close-ups on the eyes, the extreme close-ups, the talking while eating, all this stuff. And I wondered, well, I love spaghetti westerns. I love Tarantino. But it just it struck the wrong tone like it's a hustle, like it's trying too hard to be those things. And so what I came up with was gunpowder chocolate milkshake and and I don't want that to sound racist because the original gunpowder milkshake was hella vanilla hey hell that kind of rhymes there were no black people as I recall in gunpowder milkshake at all
0: yes there were in the fairy godmothers
1: oh uh, yeah Angela bassett she was I guess the token in the same way that poor kid that kept getting shot. <laughs> I mean, they did the same thing. They just blasted through whole cars of soldiers in slow motion and stuff. And that poor kid kept getting shot in the butt or whatever. (laughs) I'm saying that this movie had a wonderful cast that I truly love that went for broke with the style and changed, you know, the typical Western genre and made something, I guess, new out of it. If if it went in places that Django didn't but it forced me to reevaluate my f- sense of ownership over the Western genre.
0: Wait, ownership? That sounds kind of slavy.
1: Uh, no, I mean like this idea for me where I feel close to Westerns, which are not part of my cultural identity, I'm not white, I'm not, <laughs> I guess I'm from the West, but I felt really close to everything that this movie drew from, and I wondered why I was resisting this movie so much. You love Westerns. This is, this has a cast of people you love. Why don't you love this? And I was trying to examine why all that didn't track for me.
0: Wait, is it official you didn't love this?
1: I didn't love this. Absolutely not. But, you know, we'll get to the finer points. You know, I'll try to explain myself. But I felt like Westerns were a genre that I love and that I get. And then when it's different, I, I'm hoping that that's not why I necessarily had a visceral reaction.
0: What's not necessarily
1: the, the reason that I didn't love this movie, which tries so hard to be the other movies, which is why I compared it to Gunpowder Milkshake. It trades really heavily on the John Wicks and to some extent the Kill Bills and the Tarantino stuff, but never reaches that level of joy or even strange immersion. Do you ever believe Tarantino movies? Not necessarily, but you're wholly along for the ride. And I wasn't really along for the ride in this one. It seemed like all the pieces were in place, and to the layperson, it wouldn't make sense why I'd gush over those movies or Unforgiven or whatever and not this one.
0: When I brought up Tutti Trudy, I was kind of joking, but this film is about attitude, and I think it makes it different. You have to view it and evaluate it differently.
1: They were attitude-y for sure, and... They're fully realized in their equality as citizens and their rights to do whatever uh, in a way that I think only modern people could be. Got to kind of, I guess, be delicate about how I say that. This movie took place primarily 20 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So literally decades after slavery was abolished and All of these people, all of the primaries anyway, are actual people. I heard a statistic somewhere that one in four cowboys were black. I don't know if that translates to actual cowhands or desperados or whatever, but it's not something that has been typically represented in the Gary Cooper westerns.
0: John Wayne? Yeah.
1: Well, and John Wayne, I wouldn't know because I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but uh, I'm all about the Clint Eastwood ones. And he definitely had Morgan Freeman. And that wasn't a thing, as we discussed. Skin color, not even really mentioned. Whereas here it kind of had to be. And it was always kind of an undercurrent. Right. It was continually referenced, but they weren't hearing it. They weren't having it.
0: The character certainly had some modern sensibilities, speech and speech patterns. And as much as the filmmakers went to lengths at the top to establish that these characters were based on people that actually existed, uh, it didn't seem like the intention was to tell an authentic period story. I think that it was intended to be kind of a mashup.
1: Yeah. The director actually mentioned the Avengers, which I was going to say. It's like the Avengers, but I guess more seriously, it's also a group of people. I think they were like dinosaurs. Because, you know, there's the, the thing that Stegosaurus and Tyrannosaurus were like 60 million years apart. Wow. And like Tyrannosaurus is closer to us than it was to living in the time of the Stegosaurus, <laughs> so they couldn't fight like they do at Disneyland.
0: No way.
1: I think some of these historical black figures were as much as like 60 years apart in some cases. Huh. Yes, Buck really existed, and Nat Love really existed, and, and Mary ran, you know, like the... Not the Pony Express, but she was like the one of the first black postal, postmaster generals or something. And uh, they they all existed, but maybe not exactly in the same time frame. They weren't contemporaries.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm still stuck on the dinosaurs. What?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff. There's this idea that the like woolly mammoths and the pyramids existed at the same time. What? And that Cleopatra was closer in time to Justin Bieber than to the pyramids. <laughs> Yeah, those are awesome.
0: That's a weird juxtaposition. Yeah, it's so funny how we just compress time and history, like it's just all back then.
1: So it's an amalgamation of people, all real historical figures, uh, you know, just appropriated. And some of them had their actual personality characteristics or at least their notoriety, what they were known for. But not, you know, they were all kind of thrown together in this movie like Elvis and James Dean and Marilyn Monroe sitting in that diner, except they had guns.
0: When did... Jerry Maguire come out.
1: Ninety-five.
0: And when was this movie set?
1: This movie, eighteen eighties, I think.
0: So whether in the eighteen eighties or ninety-five, like Regina King is still the character that like, gives the pep talk and is yeah, like, well,
1: she's she's a firebrand, man.
0: She's always like the stalwart supporter and like the rock, you know, foundation.
1: Like the right? The voice of reason.
0: She's got that great fiery, affectionate thing going on. It's like I'm gonna like support you and like give you an affectionate head bump, and then I'm going to go out and like start talking about burning things down.
1: Right. That was the Charlie Prince in her. Uh, We actually did get to see her throw down. She had that scary knife on a chain. That was pretty Kill Bill. But then they did that dumb thing where they're like, okay, we're going to throw our weapons away, and we're going to fist fight to show how serious we are. But for all her ruthlessness, I thought her story about her cousin and the, the orange or whatever was maybe the best part of the movie. Like to give her character a real rounded perspective, you were pretty sure that she was just going to cut people's throats, right?
0: (laughs) Why do we have to give Tutti Trudy and Grand Entrance Buck origin stories? the whole sister with polio Mary, the sister with polio story and the broken ankle and the orange and all that kind of stuff or no it was an apple it was an apple because she was methodically peeling that apple as she spoke i mean it's so weird that you say that was the best part of the movie because that was like the groaniest part i was like okay i get it anyway that dragged for me and mostly because i got that regina king was a baddie and i got that mary had that glare thing down and i was like can we just move through the scene please
1: Well, I just like the idea that she would talk and talk, and you have to really believe that she would kill someone, right? And I was like, if you say all this to her, and you're talking yourself up, you then have to kill Mary, right? Which she almost did. Like, uh, Lakeith wasn't... I don't think he ever demonstrated a quick draw. I think he shot that dude in the back, and then he met his untimely end. But I really wanted to see him flex as the dangerous bad guy, the guy whose legend and reputation preceded him. And I don't know that we ever got that, but I do feel we got that from Trudy.
0: He was the Johnny Ringo.
1: Yeah, Cherokee Bill.
0: Yeah. And at least Johnny Ringo got to, you know, flex in the saloon, even though he got showed up by the tin cup in Tombstone.
1: <sighs> but he was ruthless. He shot the priest in the head. Spoiler.
0: And so you're saying Lakeith never threw down?
1: I'm saying that I waited for the opportunity and then we had the face-off where the idiot kid was gonna get his mouth closed for him by the you know, the seasoned gunman and then he just walked away. And that part made Kelly laugh. I was practicing that showdown all night or whatever. And I was like, God damn it.
0: Yeah, that was another one of those take you out of the film moments where the score is all tense and then it immediately cuts out as soon as Lakeith is like, yeah, I'm not playing. And then he walks back into the saloon.
1: Help me understand why I just didn't care.
0: Um, because you weren't with the dude. You notice when they get to the little encampment, by the way, were all of these locations like so familiar to you?
1: Um, not necessarily because of the way they were colored. They did feel very setty and contained.
0: Oh, very setty. You can, I mean, it just reeks of being setty and set dressed in that opening scene, you know, in, in Nate Love's origin story. <laughs> Oh, my God, it was so staged and like the kiss before dinner and her slapping his hand away and him being like, you know better. Like, it just felt so staged. Anyway, all these locations felt familiar to me, like that little rock hideaway thing was like straight out of Django and the western town, also Django, also a little bit of news of the world. I felt like I recognized a lot of these locations, but anyway, when they get to that little rock outcropping for that little showdown, uh, News of the World style, where there, you know, there's a sniper up in the rocks and all that, just after they busted up the Crimson Hood Gang, right? That was the main tonal shift for me, where I was like, "All right, this thing's going to be all over the place," because they immediately start like jive talking. Is that racist to say jive talking? <laughs>
1: I don't know. Are you talking about the scene where they got ambushed and inexplicably one of the dudes shot his horse for cover? Yes. (laughs) Where the horse went, bam, and hit the ground so they could hide behind it. Like, you can hide behind a horse standing up, you know. Or, you know, ride out of there (laughs) as need dictates.
0: Yes. And that's
1: where I understood that this was what the stylish monster that this movie was going to be.
0: It's like, the you know, the moment you start to fall asleep and, like, give in, they poke you awake. So I don't think that the intention was for you to care. I think the intention was for you to be like, this is cool, and the attitude of this film works for me.
1: I will concede I was in kind of a bad mood, and you would think that the stylishness and the violence and the, and the tude would play into my own tude, but uh, it kind of kept me out of it. I do think that I examined it critically. I just think that it was meant to evoke a deeper, more rounded, comprehensive world that I don't think it ever achieved because it felt compartmentalized, because it felt limited, stagey, setty to me. Uh, for example, the conceit seemed to be that Delroy Lindo arrested Nat and threw him in the little buggy or whatever because Nat didn't want Mary and crew to be put in harm's way by coming with him.
0: That was the ruse, yeah.
1: They thought they were being clever, but Mary and crew were cleverer and followed them and so became involved. Correct. But you didn't have to stage the arrest in Mary. You didn't have to go in there in the first place. Just sneak off and they never would have known.
0: But he wanted to see her. He went to specifically to see her.
1: Right. Go see her, Mac down, and then, and then sneak off and leave her a note in her coat pocket or in her top hat or something.
0: If he knew, if he also, if he knew that he was planning this whole ruse, then what was he fiddling with the ring for?
1: I don't know. Because that was supposed to
0: suggest that he was thinking about settling and being with her. And that wasn't for her benefit. That was displayed for our benefit, the audience's benefit. So what was the point of that if that wasn't part of the ruse?
1: Because we were intended to think too.
0: So they were trying to misdirect us as well. But yeah, why? Yeah,
1: misdirect us, and, and, right, exactly. So they felt, the filmmakers, I think, felt like that they were being clever, when to us it's kind of like I'm going to draw this dot here and I'm going to draw this dot there unnecessarily, but look, I connected them. And you're like, ooh, but it doesn't really work.
0: <laughs> yeah, because even if it is in this kind of fictional heightened reality, we want it to be, we want it to feel real.
1: Right. Mary pulls the rifle on Trudy, and then she's got all the rifles pointed at her. And then Trudy's like, give me that. And she takes her rifle, but doesn't take the gun off her hip. Turns her back and says, come on inside. And then she butts her on the side of the head with the rifle when she's with Buck. But she left the gun on the hip. There was no point in anybody dropping their guns. Because if Mary wanted to get the drop on Trudy, that was the time.
0: The power dynamics were very confusing to me because everyone's got guns and everyone has opportunities to kill each other and, and somehow honor and what is right is involved, but people kind of pick and choose when honor prevails. But most of all, it confused me when the Nat Love gang turns the tide because now they have the money and now they have some kind of leverage over Rufus Buck. And so uh-huh. now they're calling the shots. Like at what point did Cherokee Bill understand that the scales had tipped And that he was to take orders from Nat Love when Nat Love's like, don't touch that. Or when Delray Lindo's like, come walk with me. Like he can say no, but like it seemed like there was an understanding that there was a power dynamic shift. That all confused me.
1: Well, obviously, because Cherokee Bill was otherworldly, he had that sixth sense, that special sense. He could actually smell the gunpowder. And so he played along. With bass bass. Now
0: you joke, but Delroy Lindo. Definitely had a sixth sense. He was walking down Main Street, turning around and shooting people. Three hundred sixty degrees of sixth sense, where he's just picking people off as he walks down Main Street. What was that about?
1: That's because he's got the higher body count than the kid. If it were him, he's a lawman. He staged a lot of those ambushes. And if he was gonna, if he was gonna ambush from above, where would he be hiding? Up there, and he just spins and shoots. And the guy, I'm surprised they didn't do the thing where the guy goes oh and takes the shot and does the Wilhelm. And scream and falls <laughs> off the thing into the, into the airbag or whatever, behind the fence. I didn't get a lot of the motivations. I didn't go get why Mary suddenly decided on her own that she would roll into town and confront Trudy by herself.
0: She was going to get the lay of the land. She was a scout. She was scout. She was going to scout it out.
1: Intentionally, he sent the girl for whom later he was like, get, just get her out of town. Just get her out of here. He sent her into the viper's nest intentionally.
0: He didn't send her. She chose. He couldn't he couldn't stop her. He it was, it was saying I
1: don't understand her motivation to do so.
0: Because she loved him.
1: Don't go scouting then.
0: There's no other motivation than love.
1: No other motivation in this entire movie than love. She's like, no, I'm not going to marry you. I'm not (laughs) going to marry you. When this is over, we're going to go our separate ways. Except for like, you know, right now we can still bone for a while or whatever. But when this is done, no.
0: But then when it was really done, follow me. Then no.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You're saying, why did I not care? And I'm kind of countering and saying, I don't know that you had to care to appreciate this for what it was trying to be. I wasn't immersed in the story, but I think I got the vibe and it sustained me.
1: I mean, I watched the whole thing.
0: (laughs) Kind of as weird and amalgamation and... Disjointed and 2D, this whole thing is, the harder they fall worked for me because I think overall it achieved what it tried to achieve.
1: It was like One Night in Miami. I expected wondrous things from it. Didn't get those things, but I guess it was like One Night in Miami for you. Not enough worked for me because I'm relatively well-versed in Westerns enough to know what I wanted to see and I didn't see any of that. I guess everybody followed their defined arcs and everybody came exactly to the conclusion that I expected them to with the exception of the twist at the end. But it left me with a funny feeling, and I haven't been able to shake, and I look on it with some disdain.
0: Maybe it's because for as original as it was and tried to be, it was built on a kind of really familiar, nothing new foundation. It was a very cosmetic kind of surfacy and tonal adjustment to something that's very, very tried.
1: And everybody expected me to love it, and that's maybe partly why I didn't.
0: And therefore you give it a...
1: It's whatever. I know that I'm not going to watch it again. The cast is far and away the reason why it wasn't a nope. It never really would have been a nope any more than Gunpowder Milkshake. It didn't piss me off. It just, oh man, that could have been so awesome. And I just, I feel like it wasn't. But it did make me question stuff about myself. It was all right, man. No, it was whatever. It was whatever
0: and there you have it a whatever from wes a good from iris that's our review on the harder they fall also known as the more attitude they have the the, two dudes the harder they fall the two dudes let us know what you think about this film available currently on netflix 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com at or whatever movies on instagram hit us up we love to hear from you thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
1: Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Ass.